Season 2 of the Hold Fast Podcast. I'm your host, David Brandau, and my mission with this podcast is to teach the truth of the Bible in a no-compromise fashion. And sometimes that means addressing uncomfortable topics. No Christian adheres 100% to the Bible at all times. We can be mistaken or hold misguided beliefs, but how we respond to correction reveals our maturity as believers. So let me address an uncomfortable topic today. All throughout the Bible, there are warnings about false teachers and the need to guard against them. These deceivers have persisted from time immemorial, leading people to hell by propagating lies masked as spiritual truth. False teachers will preach and teach from the Bible, but their intentions aren't rooted in nurturing disciples, rescuing the lost, or honoring God. Their drive revolves around money, authority, reputation, and prominence. They don't care about your eternal destiny because they fundamentally reject its significance. Their focus lies solely on extracting immediate gains from you. But don't get me wrong, someone who is good at conning people into embracing false doctrines will skillfully employ the Bible in divine aspects to persuade you that what they're saying is true. False teachers aren't misguided or ignorant. They're evil. They are spiritual pedophiles violating the children of God, driven by their own selfish desires and cravings. And I don't want to get too far off in the weeds by listing out every false teaching or teacher. And really, that's not the primary focus of this episode. But it's worth stating that if your ministry's message is God wants you to give me money for multi-million dollar jets because I can't talk to God while flying commercial, you're wrong. You should know you're wrong and you're misappropriating God's money for personal gain. Especially when you consider that Jesus walked on his own two feet everywhere he went, and he was the Son of God. If your ministry aims to widen the narrow path of salvation by endorsing, embracing, and fostering sinful lifestyles, you're wrong. You should know you're wrong, and you're trafficking God's children into a cult of self-worship falsely masked as devotion to God. Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 10 explain this perfectly. Paul says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. 
let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news from the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. But returning to our episode today, because false teachers have persisted throughout the Bible, God saw fit to raise individuals to stand against them. Particularly in the New Testament, God used the Apostle Peter for this purpose. And what I find noteworthy about Peter's approach in addressing false teachers is his method continues to be relevant today. First, Peter uses general descriptions. He doesn't pinpoint any specific individual or doctrine, but chooses to outline the traits exhibited by false teachings and teachers. The book of 2 Peter illustrates this. While I could extensively discuss the numerous destructive heresies infiltrating the modern church, my focus, just as Peter's focus, will be describing the traits that characterize false teachers and their teachings. Peter understood, and it's crucial for you to understand, false doctrines and the people who promote them will evolve over time. But the characteristics of these spiritual predators will never change. And just as a responsible parent warns their children about predators, Peter warned the church and offered strategies to defend against their influence. This is my focus today. How can you defend yourself from false teachers and destructive doctrines? First, you must know your salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? What does it mean to know your salvation? Knowing your salvation goes beyond knowing that you prayed a prayer. It goes beyond attending church services. Why do so many Christians struggle with doubt about their salvation? They struggle because they do not truly understand what salvation looks like. When you lack true knowledge of your salvation, you lack assurance of it and fail to recognize that your salvation isn't solely based on good deeds and you become susceptible to having your faith hijacked by spiritual predators disguising themselves as divine messengers. Secondly, you must know your scripture. When the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, what did Jesus use as his defense? Scripture. Jesus was intimately familiar with the scriptures, and this enabled him to protect himself, even in the moments when the devil manipulated scripture to deceive him. Third, it's essential to know your enemy. Sun Tzu, a renowned military strategist and war philosopher, wrote what is considered by many to be the Bible of Warfare, a book called The Art of War. His insight on the significance of understanding your enemy is particularly noteworthy. He writes, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. 
If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And similar to the dynamics of physical warfare, these principles hold true when facing spiritual enemies. It's crucial to know your enemy. You must know their methods, tactics, and strategies aimed at undermining your faith. But in knowing your enemy, you also have to know yourself. What are the things that you know pull you away from God? Lastly, you must know your sanctification. And if you arm yourself with these four key understandings, you'll remain steadfast and you can never be led astray. Sure, you can choose to willingly pursue a sinful life. You can go out and choose to be and do whatever you want to do, but you won't unintentionally fall away if you know these four things. So in kicking this off, what does it mean to know your salvation? How do you know your salvation? Well, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. And in verse 1, Peter starts off, This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Now, this verse often escapes notice when looking for spiritual meaning. I mean, I overlooked it for a long time. It's an introduction to the book. Peter is identifying himself as the writer and specifying his audience. Simple. But if you dedicate time and effort to studying the scriptures, you begin to see things that might otherwise go unnoticed. The Bible is far more than a book. It's a divine medium through which God reveals himself to you. And some of that is what we looked at in season one. Within its pages, you can learn how God intends for you to live, behave, and believe. But how does this particular verse convey spiritual meaning? And let me share what God is saying to me. To defend ourselves against false teachers and false doctrines, it's vital to know our salvation. We must recognize that when we are saved, we are united with Christ and must hold fast to our identity. In this verse, Peter provides us an example of this. For those unfamiliar with Peter's backstory, before he met Christ, Peter was called Simon. After he met Christ, his name became Peter. And in the opening of this letter, he introduces himself as Simon Peter, indicating that he recognizes who he is in Christ, Peter, which is made possible by recalling who he was before Christ, Simon. Without acknowledging who you were before Christ, you cannot fully comprehend your identity in him. Forgetting what you were saved from can lead to the misconception that your salvation was unnecessary. To receive salvation, every individual must acknowledge their inherent need for it. A genuine Christian maintains a continuous awareness of their need for salvation even after receiving it. Next, Peter tells us he is both a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's apostolic office signifies his significant role as a messenger of God's unique salvation message, but his servanthood to Christ holds equal importance. 
Why is this crucial? Peter is saying, yes, I hold the office of an apostle, but this position doesn't elevate me above any other believer. When Christians lose sight of their fundamental role as slaves to Christ, they tend to develop an inflated sense of superiority over others. Every Bible hero embraced their status as a slave to God, and that enabled them to be used mightily. Moses, the liberator of Israel who communed directly with God, Joshua, the conqueror of the promised land, and even King David from whose lineage Christ descended, all bore the mantle of being God's slaves. In the New Testament, Paul, James, and as we see here, Peter, each acknowledged Christ as their master, just as all believers are called to do. Present-day sensitivities make the term slave seem inappropriate. It's not politically correct to say we're slaves today. The software I use to write these episodes keeps flagging the word slave as insensitive. I recall a pastor friend who grappled with quoting certain scriptures not because he didn't believe they were true or he disagreed with them in any way, but because of the potential implications of calling someone a slave to Christ. The truth embedded in the Bible and the reality of the gospel is that salvation necessitates wholehearted surrender. Verses like, you are not your own and you were bought with a price, alongside the constant reference to Jesus as Lord, which means master, owner, and possessor, leaves no room to escape the reality that becoming a Christian means being a slave to Christ, not just in word, but in action. Peter's message in verse 1 is clear. Because he is a slave to Christ, he is an apostle. The word apostle means someone chosen to deliver a message. And with unwavering confidence in his salvation, Peter acknowledges his past identity before Christ, holds fast his present identity in Christ, and functions as a slave sent with a purpose. And in this capacity, Peter defines his intended recipients, those who share the same precious faith. Peter's opening verse lays the foundation for knowing our salvation. To truly know your salvation, it's imperative you know its source, its scope, and its sufficiency. Peter says he's writing this letter to those who share the same precious faith, which in the Greek means they received that faith through divine allotment. The precious faith we possess, acquired through divine allotment, isn't achieved through personal accomplishments, skills, or natural talents. We didn't obtain it because we were worthy of it. Our possession of this invaluable faith is solely through the will of God and by his will alone. And just as a little side note here, the term same precious faith means it's equal in value to the faith of the apostles. You have been given the same faith that was given to the apostles. It's the very same faith given to the pioneers of the early church. Those who performed miracles, healed the sick, resurrected the dead, and transformed the world. You possess this very same faith with the same power to believe. God didn't give them more faith than you. He didn't give you less faith than them. 
There are no first and second class Christians in the kingdom of God. A person who dedicated their life to God recently doesn't possess any less faith than someone who has walked with God for years. Your yearning for and pursuit of God can be different. The understanding of your need for Him might change. But the faith that saved you is the same faith that saved Peter. It requires nurturing, protecting, and application, but it is the same. And the source of this faith, equal to that of the apostles, was divinely allotted to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Peter doesn't say the righteousness of the Father and Christ. Peter designates Jesus Christ as both our God and Savior. Yes, righteousness originates with God, but we receive it through Jesus. God, through Jesus, is the source of our faith for salvation. It sounds simple, and it really is, but if it's so simple, why do some believers still believe they need more faith to attain some higher elite level of salvation to do great things for the kingdom? The apostles didn't need more faith. They didn't need more grace or new secret teachings. And neither do you. As we continue through 2 Peter, you'll realize what you do need more of, but it isn't something new. You don't need to understand some new mystery or hidden doctrine. You need to know, understand, and embrace your identity with Christ. And just as a reminder, all of this is in verse 1. Everything I've said so far is from a verse most people throw away. But let's go into verse 2 and then I'll wrap up today's episode. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Peter emphasizes that grace and peace are multiplied for those who grow in their knowledge of God, not those who experience God or feel Him or think they know Him. This concept of knowing God is central to Peter's letter, serving as a defense against spiritual threats. The term knowledge Peter uses refers to accurate and deep understanding, suggesting an intimate familiarity with God's nature. I can know of Patrick Mahomes, but having factual information is not the same as living closely with him, understanding his preferences, thoughts, and ways. Similarly, believers may acquire information about God, but without a genuine, intimate connection, true knowledge of God remains elusive. In order to protect ourselves against spiritual predators and false teachings, it's essential to recognize that our salvation originates from God and is grounded in an intimate knowledge of Him. This deep familiarity yields an overflow of grace and peace. As our intimacy with Him deepens, our comprehension of the undeserved grace bestowed upon us expands, and our assurance of a secure salvation brings about greater peace. Thank you for listening to me today. Join me next week as we dig further into 2 Peter, exploring scriptural strategies to counter spiritual threats and their harmful doctrines. Until then, hold fast. <laughs>